1: I want to bring in Christian Catalini. He is a professor at the MIT Sloan School of Management coming to us from Boston. Uh, Christian, you recently wrote a paper uh, with Joshua Gantz of the University of Toronto arguing that cryptocurrencies will affect key costs in the economy. Uh, namely the cost of verifying transactions and the cost of running a network platform or a marketplace. I just want to get your sense of where we are in the evolution away from paper money and toward cryptocurrencies.
2: So thank you very much for having me here. Um, I think this is an interesting time um, our, around this space. We, we, we just came back from, I think, the most hyped phase uh, around cryptocurrencies and blockchain and digital ledgers. Uh, 2016 and 2015, I've seen a lot of VC investment and attention in this space. And I think as people are starting to, to build solutions that actually deliver value uh, to, to customers, to different industry verticals, uh, we're, we're coming closer to, to applications. Uh, digital currencies. Clearly, one, uh, a number of central banks are looking at this really closely uh, because it has implications for how we think about monetary policy, taxation, uh, and a number of other dimensions. Of course, as many other systemic changes, uh, it's unlikely to happen overnight. And I think a lot of the hype hasn't served well this, uh, this ecosystem because the technology is complex, and bringing it to market will take some time.
0: Can you speak in detail about blockchain and its ability to create uh, or to offer tamper proof transaction records? I mean, that's part of the promise.
2: Absolutely. And in fact, so in our piece, what we're trying to focus on is really basic economic theory. So from from an economics perspective, we verify attributes of transactions all the time. Anything you can think of in the economy is essentially a transaction, whether you authenticate yourself, you buy goods, you sell goods, you're trading. Um, And those attributes matter a lot, because often, uh, you know, as long as things go well, we we don't worry and and the transaction goes smoothly. But when there's an exception, we often need to go back and verify credentials, of individuals involved, attributes of the goods. Think about the provenance, uh, how they've been manipulated across the supply chain. And that's usually very costly. We usually perform an audit when we need to verify attributes. Um, I think the promise of blockchain is really lowering the cost of that process, that process of verifying attributes to almost to zero. And that's quite fascinating you know, to, to markets.
1: Well, Christian, uh, I want to look at Bitcoin, which is probably the most closely watched virtual currency out there. Yesterday, there was a story in the Wall Street Journal that Circle Internet Financial, which is one of the most heavily funded digital currency startups, will no longer offer customers the ability to buy and sell Bitcoins. Based on the setbacks that we have seen with Bitcoin gaining uh, clout as a currency and you know the, the failure for blockchain to really take off at the big banks, what's your optimism that we will transfer the, the financial system towards something that is more uh, in line with a cryptocurrency model?
2: Absolutely. So I, I think those are all very valid points. And, and those are kind of the main challenges of a technology that is evolving into compliance, right? So Bitcoin was designed, let's remember that, to be totally decentralized, censorship-proof, and distributed, right? So it was in, in total antithesis to the regular financial system. Uh, therefore, it, it made some choices in terms of, you know, the privacy of the transactions, who can vet transactions that were very idiosyncratic to Bitcoin. At the same time, we need to not forget that the major breakthrough in cryptography behind blockchain is much more general, and in fact, what you're seeing now is you know banks, financial institutions, accounting firms, rethinking this technology from the ground up and repurposing it for different markets. In different settings, you, you will need different types of cryptocurrencies with different properties, with different you know compliance levels. Uh, Bitcoin, uh, I think, it's scaling uh, quite successfully uh, on a global scale, but not necessarily you know in in the way that it's the most compatible to current financial systems. Um, the move that you, you mentioned by Circle is one where the company is seeing itself more and more as you know, a, a global payment uh, app where people can easily transfer money across the globe. It doesn't really matter what cryptocurrency they use. It could be Bitcoin. It could be something else. Uh, the technology is still kind of working in the background, but the consumer doesn't really need to see it.
0: Is this compet- competition uh, include companies such as Venmo, and then maybe bring in R three, which is that uh, consortium uh, backed by financial firms, right? J P Morgan Chase, Bank of America, and Barclays.
2: Absolutely. And in fact, I think you're seeing a lot of experimentations from startups that maybe want to tie themselves to to Bitcoin or Ethereum or other cryptocurrencies to consortiums of banks. Uh, Archery recently released Corda. It's fascinating to see how even within that consortium, some players have decided to Just tell people what
0: Corda is briefly, because that's an interesting collaboration result.
2: Yeah. So essentially, that's a number of uh, banks that have decided to design their own protocol to streamline transactions, because I think there's a huge opportunity here in improving our settlement and reconciliation of books happens on on a global scale. Um, But even within Corda, I think you're starting to see that, you know, uh, Goldman Sachs and others are deciding to go alone uh, because maybe they want a slightly different implementation of the same technology.
1: So real quick, what's the one thing that you're looking for, the one development that will push the evolution of cryptocurrency into the mainstream and make it the base of the financial system?
2: I think it will take time, but I think what we may see is maybe uh, an economy, uh, a government, or um, you know it could be even like a, a private player within an ecosystem with a supply chain uh, doing a major adoption effort. Um, I think that will take some time, but as you, as you know, like recent events like in the India demonetization of the thousand and five hundred rupees can provide the fuel for, for further adoption in this market and i wouldn't be surprised if you know given the the current macroeconomic turmoil uh, maybe a central bank would consider this as an opportunity to reform taxes and how they do many of their services to citizens.
0: Christian Catalini, thank you very much. Professor of Entrepreneurship at the MIT Sloan School of Management. Some immediate thoughts uh, from our next guest. John Stoltzfus is uh, Oppenheimer's chief investment strategist. He knows everything about global markets. John, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for Good being here with him. us. Uh, uh, let's start off with um, the Mario Draghi, European mm-hmm. Central Bank, and then I want to get your thoughts on emerging markets. But why don't you start there and tell us what that all means for investors?
3: Well, we've been big fans of Mario Draghi for uh, for a long time. I think his, his process of, of doing whatever it takes has has helped Europe. Uh, it, it's a very complex situation but when you consider it that it, it's they're coming up on their second anniversary of QE and already they're talking tapering Now uh, much of that uh, not officially talking Wait, tapering, i was just but about to say tapering. they, they he 60, said, I, w- we learned 90. today it's 60
0: right 60 billion, <laughs> 60 billion but for a longer period of time until uh, 20 uh, December 2017
3: but it reminds me of shakespeare a rose by any other name I mean, honestly,
1: everyone today is debating the meaning of taper. Basically, they said that they're going to lower uh, the pace of purchases next year of the longer term bonds that they're buying. But they haven't discussed tapering. So then you had all of these journalists asking Mario Draghi, wait, but how does that work? You're 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 Slowing the purchases, I actually looked up tapering in the dictionary this morning. I'm like, that's the definition of it.
3: <laughs> that's the thing. It, it, you, you know, it, it, the process is always one of, of a lot of dialogue, questions of semantics, uh, always wide for interpretation, and that that probably offers the day to day drama for the markets, uh, which I think we saw in the currency with the euro. Uh, first was stronger, then it moved lower. Uh, on, uh, as uh, as the announcement came out today, but I think the good news is just the thought that they're thinking of of, of going to that uh, uh, 60 uh, number uh, on a monthly basis versus 80 shows it just very much on parallel to uh, Bernanke in in May of 20 uh, uh, 2013 uh, when when Bernanke intimated that the Fed was beginning to think about the possibility of tapering. And uh, when the market took that, the market actually had a, a a tantrum then. It doesn't look like we're getting that today. Well, And I wanted to thing. ask
1: you about that. Yeah. That, mm-hmm. to me, is meaningful, that we're not seeing a tantrum in markets. Mark. Yes, you are seeing some price swings, but these are pretty minor moves in the scheme of things. I, this is not no. another taper tantrum all oh. over again. Does this mean to you that central bankers have really lost their clout, that people are not looking to them as much anymore?
3: I I really don't think that that, that's the the issue. I think it's more that I think there's a recognition that the central bankers have become remarkably experienced since 2008 dealing with a, a significant crisis situation coming out of it. And managing a recovery process, uh, both sometimes on a concerted effort and sometimes really uh, uh, on a parallel effort. It just just depends. But they appear to have learned from one another. And of course, the next chapter is as governments start fiscal spend. We think the infrastructure story here from stateside, which would have happened either with Hillary Clinton and now will happen probably to a greater extent with Donald Trump, uh, will spread around the world. And it's something that's needed both by uh, uh, developed nations as well as Emerging nations, so and it'll relieve it'll take the onus away from the central banks. We think of having to carry these economies.
0: All right. Well, you mentioned emerging nations. I'd no. like you to get a little specific and tell us which <laughs> ones do you think will benefit the most from the fiscal stimulus that you're describing may appear in the United States.
3: Well, I, I would have to think uh, that on a regional basis, uh, uh, we would probably. There's risks, of course, because of, of the the president uh, elects. Uh, well, that's what Mario right, Draghi reiterated. in fact Mario Draghi okay.
0: said he said quote political uncertainty is dominant and he cited Brexit and yep. the uh, election of Donald Trump.
3: Yeah, uh, w- without a doubt uh, it, it, there are all kinds of questions as to to what's going to c- to come but I think that in terms of signals that are coming out of uh, uh, 56th Street and 5th Avenue we would have to think that what we're looking at is uh, certainly is somewhat uh, of, of amelioration from where the, the very sharp rhetoric during the, the campaign uh, being rounded out here. We'd have to think in terms of emerging markets, we think Asia looks like uh, it, it's it, it's – plenty happy about what's going on compared to what many would have thought initially.
1: Are you bullish uh, on China?
3: Uh, not necessarily on China, but on the region. So they're trading partners. Uh, what we do like about China, of course, is is we saw an uptick uh, in imports and, and in exports. Uh, uh, that 's a good sign, and we can 't help but think that uh, yeah, it, Donald Trump is a globalist, even though it, he is he is looking to uh perhaps take back some of the economic edge we gave away years ago in trade agreements now on a world where the competitive landscape has been vastly reduced uh, or, or leveled by globalization as well as by uh technology right. where emerging markets are, are so which countries re- okay in terms terms of countries i 'd have to think. Uh, Korea, uh, Taiwan.
0: Uh, I would have to think. Are you naming countries that have turmoil related to the uh, to political issues, or or both, both opportunities? Both. Uh, well, I would
3: say here opportunities from okay. the extent that, of, of multinational. Uh, uh, trade uh, positions that will likely not be as affected as negatively as might be thought. And we'd have to think China will come, will, will benefit from this as well. We, we've just been, usually we like to benefit from the right. region uh, more than direct uh, in China.
1: What about back here in the U.S.? Um, I've heard some calls for 30% decline in the S&P. Uh, some people are saying maybe just a 10%. What's your thought?
3: What, it, it, uh, what it, In terms of, you know, it, it, we'd have to get some kind of a bolt from the blue to see some kind of a decline. So you
1: think that the, the S&P is going to keep going up?
3: I, I think that uh, the S&P will likely level out. We're hoping it will go through our 2,300 target, which we put in last December 22nd. We're about 2.5% away from that right now. Uh, but uh, at, we've seen real good performance, much better performance out of mids and smalls, and we were market cap agnostic also. So we're optimistic. We think the, the but the, the level of and, and momentum that we're seeing now, we think will carry through the end of the year. But the first quarter may have a traditional New Year's revisiting and, and consideration, but we're not looking for a significant drop.
1: Just real quick, what about high yield bonds? Related to high yield, you know, I,
3: I, the thing about high yield is, if, if, if anything, it, it, it tends to be an area that where, where sentiment swings very sharply, either to one side of the boat or the other. Right now, the fact that you're dealing with uh, a, a scenario that appears to be a, a continuation of increasing growth stateside moving forward should be good for high yield bonds, which are proxies for the equity market within the bond space.
1: So going forward, you sound pretty bullish.
3: Yeah, I I still am bullish and uh, have been bullish uh, uh, actually since January of of 2009 when we were looking forward. Fortunately, we were quoted by by a a newspaper out in Des Moines at that time. Otherwise, we would have forgotten when we turned bullish.
1: (laughs) John Stoltzfus, Oppenheimer's chief investment strategist. Thank you so much. I want to learn more about moonshot ideas, the sort of out there crazy ideas that may one day make another billion dollars. Uh, with us to tell us all about uh, those ambitious ambitions and how they may be getting ratcheted back at Google is Max Chafkin, Bloomberg tech reporter who, who's here in Bloomberg 1130's studio. Max, you wrote this fascinating story about how Google makes so much money that it never had to worry about financial discipline until now. Set the scene for us
4: right so uh basically you think of google and you think of um search obviously but you also think of a very successful email program maybe youtube um maybe you start thinking about these these further off ideas the self-driving car they make internet balloons uh they have venture capital arms they have all these different divisions trying
1: to find a cure for death
4: yeah there's a a company called calico trying to find a cure for death run by art levinson um, and 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 the weird kind of reality of this is that there's really only one piece of the business that makes a lot of money which is their advertising part primarily search ads the the little ads that show up when you search and you know and that and that's created kind of like one of the weirdest companies I think in like the history of capitalism where you have this amazingly successful business and then all these other businesses businesses that are outside of that. And um, for years, uh, Larry Page and Sergey Brin have basically allowed these other businesses, which are kind of these little fiefdoms, to just do whatever they want. And now Google, uh, which is now called Alphabet, is trying to kind of rein that in, but also rein it in in a way that doesn't totally squash innovation.
0: You know, one of the illustrations for this story is an energy generating kite. And I confess that it immediately brought to mind images of Howard Hughes and the Spruce Goose, the uh, mecha plane that flew just once. Uh, Can you tell us about Astro Teller, the people that you met while you made this story come to life?
4: Right. So so my co-writer and I, Mark Bergen, went inside of uh, X, which is used to be called Google X, it is the uh, the crazy research lab that's responsible for for Google's moonshots. They they call themselves the Moonshot Factory. They all have these crazy titles. Uh, Astro, I think, is now called CEO, but for a long time he was captain of moonshots. Um, and and so you have and, and so anyway, it's 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 this crazy research lab. They have a they have the driverless car. They have the energy generating kites. Uh, they have uh, these uh, internet balloons, uh, and they have drone delivery. And you know all of these things. You know, they could be huge businesses, but they're all still sort of a ways off. I'd say the car, the driverless car, is the thing that's closest to becoming, you know, a a revenue generating uh, business. They're they're supposedly they're going to spin it off um, next year, although we don't know for sure.
1: Uh, I love this quote from the owner's manual for Google shareholders. Do not be surprised if we place smaller bets in areas that seem very speculative or even strange. Uh, you know, you were talking, Max, about how uh, Google is unlike any other company possibly in history because they get most of their revenue from one area and then invest in all these other areas. One possible agent for change has been Ruth Porat, who came uh, to the company last year as chief financial officer for from Morgan Stanley. Uh, And she's developed sort of an unflattering reputation among these sort of moonshot magicians, correct?
4: Right. Well, so it's probably important to point out that on Wall Street, uh, people love this. They're very happy that Google is trying to be a little bit smarter about how it spends its money. However, in the moonshot factory and in some of these other divisions, uh, this is look, really looked at as like bringing in this kind of New York, Wall Street type to kind of, you know, make a bunch of decisions where, you know what I mean, where where, where from their the perspective, she doesn't know anything about. It. Yeah. some One person called called her, referred to her as a, a hatchet man. Um, now, I think what Google would say and what, what, what people inside of these bets, as they're called, say is that, you know, from, you know, constraints – you can still have innovation. That sometimes it's important actually to say like you can only spend this much money because that forces people to be a little bit more creative. I actually think there's something to that. And I think one of the things, especially when you look at say – the driverless car. I think it's possible that the driverless car suffered a little bit from basically an almost unlimited budget. Um, you know, Google is technologically ahead of just but just about everybody else, but commercially they are actually kind of behind a bunch of companies. They're behind Tesla. They're behind Uber. And and you you wonder if maybe if they'd had placed a, some more constraints on the business, they would have been forced to take a product to market sooner. On the other hand, there's safety reasons and and you know it's a long game, so we'll see. How was the food? The food at Google and Alphabet is excellent, as you might imagine. Um, and and one of the one of the most surreal experiences uh, Mark, my co writer, and I had during the during our visit to X was you know sitting there and there's this picnic area where people are picking at you know seared tofu. It's probably locally sourced or something. And you know just a few feet away from this picnic area, there's a drone going up and down and up <laughs> and down, and everybody's just you know basically ignoring it like you know like it's nothing and, and you just realize like man this is a this is an interesting place this is a place that's that's doing things that nobody else is doing and well, it's kind of doing it on a scale that nobody else is doing it at
0: well you're doing it on a great scale by sharing this information and this story with us Max uh, Chafkin also with uh, Mark Bergen uh, co-authors uh, of this great story you've got to read about Google making so much money that it doesn't necessarily have to worry about discipline
1: To take a look at bonds. I want to look at particularly European bonds, which have been uh, responding to today's ECB announcement uh, that they will lower the amount of uh, bonds that they will purchase each month starting in April next year. But they also had some other messages that might be a little bit more uh, sort of dovish, frankly. I want to bring in for more insight, uh, Maxime Sabayi, Euro-area economist for Bloomberg Intelligence uh, to give us a better sense of what's going on here. So, Maxime, what's your big takeaway from the ECB's announcement today?
5: Yes, hello from London. Uh, well, the, the announcement of D C B was quite a surprise, actually. Because, it was, right? Uh, yeah, because they went for for actually they went for longer than what I expected, but at a bit at a smaller pace. So now they're going to buy uh, 60 billion a month, starting in April until December 2017. So that means they're going to go for one more year of QE. Uh, market expectations were for something a bit a bit shorter uh, at the same current 80 billion pace. So they're going smaller, but for longer.
1: Wait, hold on. I just I want to raise one important point. They also lowered the yields, or they allowed the ECB to buy bonds with yields that are lower than the deposit rate. In other words, uh, this is saying, okay, you want to go buy those two-year German yields, uh, German bonds that have yields that are too low under the current uh, provisions? Go ahead. We're going to allow that. And what you're seeing is a steepening in the yield curve. In fact, uh, the German yield curve steepened to the widest of the year and, uh, and, and the most in, uh, in many years. So I'm looking at this and wondering, is this a similar move to the Bank of Japan? Is this basically the ECB saying we're going to peg short-term rates and we're going to allow longer-term rates to sort of creep upward?
5: Well, that's not what they said explicitly, but maybe they're they're going to that. Uh, The deposit rule was actually something they put in place from the start to uh, avoid making losses on on these purchases. And basically now they can buy anything below the deposit rate, uh, which is set at minus 0.4%. And also uh, another QE parameter they changed today is the fact that they can buy anything now uh, uh, until one year maturity. Before that, it was from two years until 30 years, and now it's also one year uh, to 30 years. So there's There's a double effect here, uh, obviously weighing on the the, uh, short end of the curve, yes. Can I just ask you to comment on whether these
0: projections into 2019 really make any sense? I mean, I know they have to answer the question and they have to check the box. But, you know, even if we just look back to 2015, originally the European Central Bank estimated that they would have maybe a trillion euros on their balance sheet. Today, they have more than two and a quarter trillion on target. This is a changing situation. So why do these projections out to 2019
5: and and beyond, why does that really matter? Well, um, as an economist, it's always difficult to, to, to talk about projection uh, in the next three years, obviously. It's already difficult to do it for the next year, the next two years. So three years, obviously, is, exactly. a, bit, is a bit stretched. Um, the thing is they, they have to publish this because it's also an indication of how they assess um, their own homework, how they are reaching the target. And uh, the thing to, to, to be careful with these projections is that they, the, 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 what they did today, the, the announcement and all the decisions are not penciled in these projections because they were made before that. So uh, it's important to keep that in mind. Um, Obviously, Draghi acknowledged during the press conference that... Just to to explain then, so what does that mean? What should we we take away from that? Well, the takeaway is that he acknowledged during the press conference uh, that 1.7% in 2019, which is the projection they have now for inflation is, you acknowledge it, is not uh, close to the target, to the mandate. And that means uh, it's a very dovish message, actually, that they could actually go for even longer than December 2017. Uh, And, yeah, again, that's a dovish message from Draghi, saying we're not done here. It could be much longer than uh, than what we have today.
1: Maxime, what insight did you glean on what the latest ECB announcements mean for the peripheral nations, namely Italy, which has struggled, uh, certainly after the no referendum vote, but also because of the banking system there?
5: Well, we know that the QE program is helping uh, the periphery uh, more than the core, if even if they buy more at the core than uh, at the periphery because of the capital keys. Uh, but the message sent from the ECB here is that um, we're going to be here for longer. M- Mario Draghi said that. He said there's no tapering. We're going to stay in the market. We're going to continue to exert pressure on prices. He was very clear about this. The message is uh, your borrowing costs are going to stay uh, uh, for longer, are going to stay uh, very low. And uh, we're here to help you, um, not just the periphery, but the eurozone as as a whole.
0: Speak if you can about the implications for currencies, because the ten-year U.S. Uh, Treasury at uh, right now 2.39 percent, uh, uh, a sell-off of 16.30 seconds. The 30-year stands at 3.08 uh, percent. It is off uh, one and six thirty seconds. Uh,
5: implications uh, for the euro and the dollar. Well, obviously, the ECB is is probably uh, expecting, is probably hoping uh, for this to have an uh, effect. Obviously, with the FOMC next week, this will also be a factor. Uh, It's not a policy target, as they say, but it's surely something they're watching uh, today.